Okay, Quality Management Systems, Principles and Practices, Part 2. Computer System Validation. A computer system is composed of hardware, software, peripheral devices, networks, personnel, and documentation. Validation of the computer system in the environment where it will be used by those who will use it is required. This also includes validation of interfaces between systems. For example, a blood establishment would need to validate the interface between its BECs and a testing instrument. Although much work is done by the vendors who develop software, the end user must still perform a validation and may even report work that the vendor has already done. An important part of validating a computer system is to ensure that the system can still operate when stressed. The FDA has issued guidance to assist organizations in the performance of a computer validation system. Test method validation. When laboratories wish to implement a non-waived test using an FDA-approved or cleared test system, CLIA requires that the performance specifications established by the manufacturer be verified by the laboratory before it reports patient results. At a minimum, the laboratory must demonstrate that it can be obtained performance specifications comparable to those of the manufacturer for accuracy, precision, reportable range, and reference intervals, normal values. If the laboratory develops its own method, introduces a test system not subject to FDA approval or clearance, or makes modifications to an FDA-approved or cleared test system, or if the manufacturer does not provide performance specifications, then the laboratory must establish the test system performance specifications before reporting patient results. At a minimum, the following must be established for the test system. Accuracy, precision, reportable range of test results for the test system, reference intervals or normal values, analytical sensitivity, analytical specificity, including interfacing substances. Any other performance characteristic required for test performance, for example, specimen or reagent stability. Based on performance specifications, the laboratory must also establish calibration and control procedures and document all activities for test method validation, Title 42 CFR Part 493.1253.1 provides additional information on this. Quality control. QC is an important aspect of process control. It ensures the proper functioning of materials, reagents, equipment, and methods. QC is an event that is different from validation in that it is not repeated to gain assurance of consistency, but rather it is repeated at a given frequency to ensure results are within acceptable ranges, and also over time to determine if any trends are developing that might indicate something is eventually going to fail. The frequency of QC testing is usually determined by the criticality of what is being tested. Some QC frequency is dictated by regulatory or accrediting bodies such as the FDA. Additional information on QC frequency is found in Appendix 1-3. All QC should be well documented to include who did the testing, the date it was done, the results, and whether or not testing was acceptable. Documentation should be concurrent with the performance of the testing, and records should be available for future inspections or assessments.
unacceptable QC should be evaluated and the process should not continue until the issue is resolved. Corrective actions may be necessary before acceptable QC can be obtained. Items that fail QC should be marked not for use until the issue is resolved. Because QC is performed on a schedule, if a failure occurs, it may be necessary to assess product produced since the last acceptable QC result. This is clearly why determining the criticality of what is being tested is important. The more frequent the QC, the less product is involved in the evaluation. Training. Orientation training is critical for new employees and is discussed along with a specific job training and competency assessment in the section on human resources. Workplace safety training is detailed in chapter two. Tracking and trending. Tracking is an integral part of record keeping and is noted in the following section of document and records. Trending is a concept embodied in many quality system activities. Identifying and analyzing trends is discussed in the monitoring and evaluation section below. Documents and records. Documentation is important in that it provides evidence of what was done as well as details about what was done. Good documentation can provide full traceability or details and trackability, a logical sequence of steps in the execution of processes. Organizations involved in the production of blood and cellular products create many documents and records. These include quality manuals, policy and process documents, SOPs, work instructions, job aids, forms, and labels. Document creation. Documents should be created in a consistent manner. An SOP should be in place to define the format of documents, as well as a review and approval process, both initially and routine intervals. Documents should have a numbering system, and changes to documents should be made in a controlled manner, or change control. Document control is a key element of process control. Many organizations now have computerized document control systems that are validated for activities such as document development, document routing for review and approval, controlled document printing, and editing documents when necessary. Some organizations have complete, have been, some organizations have become completely paperless. The quality manual. The quality manual is one of the most important documents in a blood and cellular therapy establishment. The quality manual describes the organization's quality policy, quality objectives, and overall approach to the quality in all aspects of the business. It defines how the organization is structured to ensure implementation of the quality system and defines the roles of the staff, including line staff, all the way up to senior management. It points out how the quality system integrates with operational tasks and how those tasks are monitored to ensure quality outcomes. Policy and process documents. Policies describe the manner in which an organization operates. They are high-level documents describing the position that an organization takes on a particular topic. Not all policies are regulated. For example, a dress code policy or a tobacco use policy are not required by any regulatory or accrediting bodies. But if an organization wants staff to dress a particular way or to avoid the use of tobacco in the workplace, a policy is a good way to document this. 
as necessary, policies are supported by other forms of documentation within an organization, such as SOPs and forms. Process documents are also high level and describe the inputs for a process, the conversion that takes place, and the output of a process. A process document provides the big picture and may take the form of a flowchart. It is particularly helpful when trying to understand a process at a high level. Standard operating procedures and work instructions. SOPs describe who does what and when in sequence or order. They describe the steps of a process. Well-written SOPs provide the how in performing a process. They should be detailed enough for a trained individual to perform the task, but not so detailed that they are unnecessarily restrictive. SOPs should be written within input from subject matter experts and should be validated to ensure that they are effective. SOP validation usually involves an individual performing the task using the SOP as written. The individual notes whether the steps in the SOP make sense and whether the steps can be performed as written. Finalized SOPs should be reviewed and approved by the appropriate department personnel and the medical director as appropriate and then approved by quality before becoming effective and released. Staff should receive training in all SOPs applicable to their jobs, and SOPs must be accessible at all times to staff performing the work. SOPs need to be periodically reviewed to ensure that they are current and reflective of the work as it's being done. Some organizations review a portion of their SOPs each quarter to ensure that the entire collection of SOPs is reviewed each year. Work instructions provide step-by-step -step instructions of how a task is performed. They are more specific and more detailed than procedures. Not all organizations have work instructions. Some organizations choose to just use the term procedure for all step-by-step -step documents. Whatever term organization chooses, the documents describing how the work is done still need to be controlled and managed in a consistent manner. Changes to the SOPs and the work instructions need to be made in a controlled manner that allows for the changes to be made, validated, and communicated to all the stakeholders before implementation. Job aids. A job aid is an excerpt from an approved procedure or work instruction. These are often used when a portion of the SOP has a table or information that must be frequently referenced. Job aids must be controlled just as procedures and work instructions, and there should be a way to reference a job aid to the procedure it represents. Uncontrolled job aids should not be allowed. Forms. Blank forms provide templates for the capture of information. Forms should be managed within document control and should be designed by individuals with experience. It is not true that anyone can design a form. Often mistakes can be avoided by careful form design. If the form is not self-explanatory, instructions on how to complete it should be available and individuals should receive training on completion of the form. This will reduce the likelihood of errors. Labels. Although not always thought of as a document, labels need to be created and maintained within the document control system to ensure that the label is correct, 
meets regulatory requirements, and is current. Changes to labels need to be managed just as changes to documents are within a controlled system, reviewed for accuracy and compliance, and approved. Certain labels must be submitted to the FDA for approval. Organizations must maintain a current master set of labels for reference. Document maintenance. As previously stated, documents should be created and maintained in a controlled manner. Version control is critical. Organizations also need to have a mechanism whereby changes to documents can be requested and communicated once those changes have occurred. A document history that records changes to a document should be developed and maintained. When a document is revised, the revised copy is approved and released. An archived copy of the original version should be retained for future reference. Organizations should prepare a master list of all the various types of documents in use. This list should define the most current version, how many copies are out, and where these copies are. This aids in document control. When revisions occur, it helps to ensure that all old copies of the documents are removed and replaced with the revised version. Records. Records are the evidence of what was done and prove that procedures were followed and documentation of the work performed was captured. Records should be created concurrent with the performance of the work, documenting each critical step. Good records provide the details. Traceability, who, what, when, where, and how. And a logical sequence of steps taken, or trackability. It is also important that records are permanent, which means that indelible ink should be used and any correction should be made in a manner that allows one to see what the error was. Records should be managed so that the following aspects are addressed. Creation and identification of records, confidentiality, protection of the integrity of records, protection from inadvertent destruction, protection from damage from rodents, fire, and water, storage and retrieval, retention, and destruction. Policies, process documents, procedures, and completed forms are also examples of records found in the organization involved in transfusion medicine and or cellular therapy and describe how the work was being performed at any particular time in the organization's history. The records may be in paper or electronic form and must be easily identified. There should also be information as to who created the record. Because organizations may use both signatures and initials, it is necessary to maintain a current signature sample and list of initials for all employees. If the identity of the record creator is captured electronically by entry into the computer system or by electronic badge swipe, this needs to be in compliance with electronic record-keeping rules. Because of the nature of the records created by transfusion medicine or cellular therapy organizations, many records are confidential, especially those containing donor and patient information. Records should never be left where they can be viewed by individuals who have no need to view them. If records contain confidential information and are made available to those outside the organization, any confidential information should be redacted. Records, whether in paper or electronic form, must be protected from unauthorized changes, from inadvertent destruction, and from damage caused by rodents, fire, or water. 
record storage should be designed to accomplish these goals. It also should allow the records to be retrieved easily. Access to records should be restricted, particularly if the records contain confidential information. Organizations need to have a written record retention policy that is compliant with regulations and standards. Records should be retained in accordance with that policy. Once a record has reached its end of life, it should be discarded in a manner that protects any confidential information. Such destruction methods include shredding or burning. Many organizations outsource record storage, retrieval, retention, and destruction to offsite vendors. Such vendors should be qualified, and organizations need to ensure timely access to their records for inspections and assessments. If records are stored electronically, an organization must ensure that the integrity of the electronic data is protected from unauthorized changes. Additionally, the data must be stored in a manner that would not cause inadvertent loss of data from overwriting, physical damage, or system crashes. Data integrity should be assessed periodically. Organizations may have a documented mechanism for error correction for paper documents and for electronic documents. In both cases, it is important that the error is not obliterated. The common industry practice for correcting errors on paper documents is to draw a single line through the error, write the correction above it, and then initial and date the correction. If an explanation for the correction is needed, this can be written alongside the correction. If there is insufficient room, an asterisk can be used and the explanation written elsewhere on the document, even on the back. Electronic document maintenance should always allow an audit trail to show what the error was, what the correction was made, who made it, and when it was made. Information management. Organizations have a tremendous amount of information that must be managed as part of the quality system and much of that information, as previously stated, must be confidentially maintained. Access to information should be limited to those who need the information for work purposes. Unauthorized copying of information, whether paper or electronic, should not be allowed. If documents are maintained in a paper state and contain highly confidential information, they should be in locked file cabinets, and if stored electronically, they should be protected by access rights. Although the topic is not within the scope of this chapter, organizations that store personal health information must comply with the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA. More information on HIPAA may be found at www.hhs.gov forward slash HIPAA. Backup of critical electronic information is important. Backup should be routinely run, and there should be a written procedures to restore any data that may be inadvertently lost. Management of non-conforming events. The QMS should contain processes and procedures to detect, document, investigate, correct, and follow up non-conforming events such as the production and the product that does not meet specifications. Such processes and procedures must be in line with regulations and applicable standards and should include the following. Documentation of the event, either electronically or on paper, with some sort of classification. Determination of the effect, if any, on the quality of products or services. 
evaluation of the effect on interrelated activities, investigation and root cause analysis, selection of appropriate corrective action, implementation of corrective action as appropriate, notification and recall, implementation of appropriate preventative action, reporting to external agencies when required, evaluation of the effectiveness of corrective actions and preventative actions taken, or CAPA, C-A-P-A. Staff should be trained to find and report nonconformances, which include errors and accidents and adverse reactions in donors and recipients. It is important to capture the facts of the event in sufficient detail to allow a complete and thorough investigation. It is critically important once a nonconformance is discovered to determine the impact of the, that nonconformance on products and or services. If the nonconformance negatively impacts product quality, it may be necessary to quarantine the products or to perform a recall if the product has been distributed. The sooner an organization can gain control of the affected product, the better. Organizations should always consider the impact of their products and or services as soon as possible after discovery of a nonconformance. It is also a good idea to determine if the nonconformance has impact on other areas of the organization's operations. It may be necessary to involve more than one department in the investigation to fully understand what occurred and its impact. Not all nonconformances require a full investigation, but there are normally some level of investigation required for most nonconformances. A thorough investigation may involve interviewing staff, reviewing training records, and reviewing SOPs. Also, investigations may involve other record review or review of data to determine the extent of the nonconformance. Root cause analysis is a collective term that describes a wide range of approaches, tools, and techniques used to uncover causes of problems. A root cause analysis to determine the cause or causes of the nonconformance is often necessary. It is important to continue to ask why to determine the true root of causes. Without finding the true cause of a nonconformance, it is possible that the problem will reoccur. If the root cause is fixed, the problem should not reoccur. Although there is substantial debate on the definition of root cause, the following are considered true. Root causes are specifically underlying causes. Root causes are those that can reasonably be identified. Root causes are those management has control to fix. Root causes are those for which effective recommendations for preventing recurrences can be generated. There are several tools that are useful in performing a root cause analysis. These include brainstorming, useful in generating potential causes, a fishbone diagram, useful in determining causes and contributing factors, a failure mode effective analysis, FMEA, a step-by-step -step approach for identifying all possible failures in a design, a manufacturing or assembly process, or a product or service, and the five whys using for drilling down to the true cause. For the last one, there is no magic to the number five. One may ask three or seven or 10 whys to get to the true cause of the nonconformance. 
One of the root cause has been identified. It is then important to select an appropriate corrective action. The action should fix the issue, but at the same time, the corrective action must be reasonable. For example, if the true fix for a problem is a new computer system to capture specific data accurately, this cannot be accomplished quickly. So a more reasonable alternative may need to be chosen until the new computer system can be implemented. Also, although it seems intuitive, it should be noted that an organization must ensure the corrective action actually addresses the true issue and is not merely addressing a symptom of the problem. In the example given, the organization may choose to implement a newly designed form to reduce the likelihood of error or may implement a second review for accuracy. A note of caution here, however, is that simply adding more review seldom fixes the problem. In fact, additional review can sometimes make things worse. As part of corrective action, notification of customers about the nonconformance may be necessary, and it may be necessary to recall additional product depending on the scope of the issue and the results of the investigation. The organization should have a document process for these actions. Correcting the nonconformance is an important but equally important is determining if there are actions that can be taken to prevent the issue from reoccurring again. There are short-term corrective actions which fix the problem temporarily and long-term corrective actions which normally include preventative action and permanently fix the problem. Finding the best way to minimize the likelihood of the problem reoccurring while maintaining the ability to operate within the constraints of limited resources is key. Preventative action should be implemented whenever possible. For example, proper training might consider a preventative action if it is determined that a nonconformance resulted from a lack of training. In this instance, training might be considered both a corrective and a preventative action. It fixes the current problem and it prevents failure occurrences at the same time. Depending on the nature of nonconformance, regulatory bodies or accrediting agencies may need notification as well. Processes and procedures should include information on whom to notify and when. A voluntary recall is instituted for nonconforming product that has been distributed. In-house products can be dealt with directly. Fatalities related to blood collection or transfusion or to cellular therapy products must be reported as soon as possible to the FDA Centers of Biologicals Evaluation and Research, or CBER. Instructions for reporting to CBER are available in published guidance and on the FDA website. A written follow-up report must be submitted within seven days of the fatality and should include a description of any new procedures implemented to avoid reoccurrence. AABB Association Bulletin number 04-06 provides additional information on these reporting requirements, including a form for reporting donor fatalities. fatalities. Regardless of their licensure and registration status with the FDA, all donor centers, blood banks, and transfusion services must promptly report biological product deviations, or BPDs, and information relevant to these events to the FDA using form FDA 3486, 
When the event number one is associated with manufacturing, for example, collecting, testing, processing, packing, labeling, storing, holding, or distributing. Number two, represents a deviation from good manufacturing processes, or CGMP, established specifications or applicable regulations or standards, or that is an unexpected or unforeseen. Number three, may affect the product safety, purity, or potency. Number four, occurs while the facility had control of or was responsible for the product. And number five, involves a product that has left the facility's control. Uh, example, has been distributed. Using the same form, facilities must also promptly report BPDs associated with a distributed cellular therapy product if the event represents a deviation from applicable rep regulations, standards, or established specifications that relate to the prevention of a communicable disease transmission or contamination of the product. This requirement pertains to events that are unexpected and unforeseenable, but may relate to the transmission or potential transmission of a communicable disease or may lead to product contamination. More information concerning BPD's reporting can be found on the FDA website. There must also be a mechanism to report medical device adverse events to the FDA and the device manufacturer. The Joint Commission encouraged reporting of sentinel events, including hemolytic transfusion reactions involving the administration of blood or components having major blood group incompatibilities. Hemovigilance reporting provides an opportunity to detect investigate and respond to adverse transfusion reactions and events that results in non-conformances. A number of organizations monitor such data, including the AABB and the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC. Monitoring and Evaluation. Organizations should have a system for monitoring and evaluating the effectiveness of the organization's processes. This system should be defined as part of the QMS. Monitoring can occur at various levels. The level of input to the process, the in-process activities, the results, or the process, or even the system in which the process resides. While record review and analysis is ongoing form of monitoring, the use of internal and external assessments of the processes is very useful. Assessments may, may include comparison of actual to expected results and can consist of quality assessments, peer reviews, self-assessments, and proficiency testing. Organizations should have a process that describes how internal assessments are conducted. Each assessment should be well-planned and conducted according to the plan. Assessors may look at data such as quality indicators or other quality records or observe processes as they are performed. The assessment should cover the QMS and, at a minimum, processes that are critical to the organization's operations. When issues are found during the assessment, the process should include a mechanism to respond to those issues, ensuring that important stakeholders are aware of the issues and what corrective actions, if any, are planned. The quality department should take responsibility for oversight of these assessments and to ensure that actions are taken as warranted. Quality indicators. 
Quality indicators are statistical measurements that give an indication of output quality. They are useful in the evaluation of customer requirements, personnel, inventory management, and process control, and stability. This list is not all inclusive. Quality indicators may be based on outcomes such as quantity not sufficient rates, or they may be based on the process abilities to deliver an expected result consistently. As an example of a process quality indicator, if a customer requires stat deliveries to arrive within one hour, the percentage of deliveries that meet the customer's requirement is a measurement of that ability of the process to deliver within the required time frame. Organizations should establish alert limits for quality indicators. Involving the customer is important in making sure that alert limits are appropriately set. Organizations should communicate quality indicator results frequently so stakeholders are aware of how the organization is performing. Customers may want to be included in this reporting. Run charts, control charts, and bar charts are often useful in displaying quality indicator data. Control charts allow the organization to see if the process is operating as expected, and if not, corrective actions are indicated. Blood utilization. In recent years, organizations have become even more focused on blood utilization patterns. This is driven by the desire to decrease costs and to provide better patient care. Patient blood management, PBM, as a discipline has come to the forefront. Many organizations now have a staff member devoted to transfusion safety, the transfusion safety officer or TSO. Utilization committees review physician ordering and practices routinely. The committees also review sample collection and labeling, adverse events in patients, near miss events, outdates, discard, appropriateness of use, and compliance. Many hospitals have set up order alerts in the hospital computer system when physicians order outside of the established guidelines. AABB has published critical practice guidelines for red cell and platelet transfusion. Alternatives to red cell transfusion, such as preoperative anemia treatment, are under study and have been incorporated into routine practice in efforts to decrease the need for transfusions. Physicians are asked to use data to determine if a second transfusion is warranted instead of issuing a blanket order for transfusion of two units, a common practice among transfusing physicians. An example of this kind of improvement seen as a result of the implementation of the PBM program in a large teaching hospital. The use of thromboelastography, or TAG, or thromboelastometry, TEM, to guide physicians on when to transfuse to correct coagulation factor levels is now common practice. In addition to providing better care, PBM limits needless transfusions, thereby saving dollars and ensuring components are available for those who need them the most. External assessments. External assessments are those that are conducted by agencies and organizations that are not affiliated by, with the facility being assessed. They may be voluntary, as in the case of AABB assessments, or mandatory, as in the case of the FDA inspections. Organizations that assess or inspect blood banks, transfusion services, and cellular therapy facilities include the following. 
AABB, the College of American Pathologists, or CAP, Commission on Office Laboratory Accreditation, or COLA, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, the Joint Commission, Foundation for the Accreditation of Cellular Therapy, or FACT, Food and Drug Administration, FDA, and state health departments. The list includes both accrediting organizations and regulatory entities. Other agencies, such as the Department of Transportation and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, may assess the organization as well. Accreditation is voluntary, whereas regulation is the law. The external assessments conducted by these entities are usually against standards or regulations promulgated by the organization that is performing the assessment. Although with any assessment or inspection, there are some level of angst. These assessments are usually beneficial to the facility and are opportunities for learning and improving operations. It is important that staff are trained on how to conduct themselves during an assessment or inspection, both to decrease their anxiety and to ensure they understand what the assessor inspector can and cannot do. If issues are discovered during an external assessment or inspection, these are usually documented and provided to the facility in an exit meeting. The facility should perform root cause analysis and implement corrective action as required. Normally, the facility will submit a written response to the entity performing the external assessment. Just as with internal assessments, management needs to be well informed of the findings and correct actions related to those findings. Proficiency testing. Uh, proficiency testing, or PT, is a testing of samples previously unknown to a laboratory that are sent by a CMS-approved PT program. There are a number of organizations that provide PT samples. AABB, for example, provides PT for immunohematology reference laboratories. Normally, a facility will perform at least three testing events each year. PT samples should be managed as any other samples that the laboratory tests, and the testing should be rotated among staff so that different individuals are tested. Submitted results are compared to other laboratories, and a pass-fail determination is assigned. Accrediting agencies or organizations monitor the PT results for facilities that accredit. When failure occurs, it is expected that the facility will conduct an investigation try to find the root cause of the issue, and implement a kappa that are needed. Process improvement. Continuous improvement is a tenant of any quality program, and organizations that manufacture blood components or cellular therapy products should have processes in place that allow for continuous improvement in operations and in patient safety. Information gleaned from the non-conformance management system should be used to improve operations. This is a primary benefit of effective non-conformance management process. Other sources of improvement opportunities include customer supply established metrics, complaints, QC records, proficiency testing, internal audits, quality indicators, external assessments, financial analysis of operations, Many organizations combine the principles of lean manufacturing and Six Sigma as part of their continuous improvement processes. 
Lean Six Sigma is a managerial approach that combines Six Sigma methods and tools of the lean manufacturing, lean enterprise philosophy, striving to eliminate waste of physical resources, time, effort, and talent, while assuring quality in production and organizational processes. Lean Six Sigma has two objectives. Number one, a focus on eliminating non-value added steps and processes. And number two, eliminating defects and improving the overall process. Lean Six Sigma uses the define, measure, analysis, improve and control methodology, a five-step approach to process improvement. This approach cannot, oh, pardon, this approach can be used not only for problem solving, but also for process improvement. Organizations have implemented Lean Six Sigma have made significant improvement in their processes while saving valuable resources. The DMAIC process of the Lean Six Sigma is D, define the problem, improvement activity, opportunity for improvement, project goals, and customer requirements. M, measure process performance. A, analyze the process, determine root cause of variation, poor performances or defects. I is for improve process performance by addressing and eliminating the root causes. And C, control the improved process and future process performance. Facilities, work environment and safety. Facilities must adequate for the work performed and must be maintained to provide a safe environment for staff, patients, and donors, and visitors. The facility itself must be clean and orderly so that not to jeopardize staff or product safety. Sufficient space is necessary when the facility to prevent mix-ups during the performance of processes and building utilities, ventilation, sanitation, trash, and hazardous substance disposal must support the organization's operations. Safety concerns include general safety components such as the use of non-slip surfaces and proper lifting techniques, as well as fire safety, biological and chemical safety, radiation safety, and disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. A written disaster plan is crucial for the organization, addressing what to do in the event of a disaster to maintain safety for staff and to maintain business continuity as much as possible. Staff must have training in safety and on the disaster plan itself. A routine test of the disaster plan, including the various scenarios that might produce disaster situations, need to be exercised under the oversight of management. Key points of Chapter 1, Quality Management Systems, Principles, and Practice. Organization and Leadership. A defined organizational structure, in addition to top management support and commitment to the quality policy, goals, and objectives, is key to ensuring the success of a quality management system. Number two, customer focus. Quality organizations should understand and meet or exceed customer needs and expectations. These needs and expectations should be defined in a contract, agreement, or other document developed with regular feedback from the customer. Number three, human resources. Quality management of all personnel addresses adequate staffing levels and staff selection, orientation, 
training, and competency assessment, as well as specific regulatory requirements. Number four, equipment management. Critical equipment may include instruments, measuring devices, and computer hardware and software. This equipment must be uniquely identified and operate within defined specifications as ensured by qualification, calibration, maintenance, and monitoring. Number five, suppliers and materials management. Suppliers of critical materials and services, for example, those affecting quality, should be qualified, and these requirements should be defined in contracts or agreements. All critical materials should be qualified and then inspected and tested upon receipt to ensure that specifications are met. Number six, process control and management. A systematic approach to developing new policies, processes, and procedures and controlling changes to them include process validation, test method validation, computer system validation, equipment validation, and QC. Validation must be planned and results reviewed and accepted. Number seven, documents and records. Documents include policies, process descriptions, procedures, work instructions, job aids, forms, and labels. Records provide evidence that the process was performed as intended and allow assessment of product and service quality. Number eight, information management. Unauthorized access to or modification or disruption of data and information must be prevented and confidentiality of patient and donor records maintained. Data integrity should be assessed periodically and backup devices, alternative systems, and archive documents maintained. Number nine, management of non-conforming events. Deviations from facility-defined requirements, standards, and regulations must be addressed by documenting and classifying occurrences, assessing effects on quality, implementing remedial actions, and reporting to external agencies as required. Number 10, monitoring and evaluation. Assessment of facility processes includes internal and external assessments, monitoring of quality indicators, blood utilization assessment, proficiency testing, and analysis of data. Number 11, process improvement. Opportunities for improvement may be identified from deviation reports, non-conforming products and services, customer complaints, QC records, proficiency testing results, internal audits, quality indicator monitoring, and external assessments. Process improvement includes determination of root causes, implementation of corrective and preventive actions, and evaluations of the effectiveness of these actions. The implementation of Lean Six Sigma can significantly increase efficiencies and reduce opportunities for error. Number 12, facilities, work environment, and safety. Procedures related to general safety, biological, chemical, and radiation safety, fire safety, and disaster preparedness are required. Space allocation, building utilities, ventilation, sanitation, trash, and hazardous substance disposals must support the organization's operations. This concludes the end of Chapter 1, AABB Technical Manual, 19th edition, 
quality management systems, principles, and practice. Quality Management Systems, Principles, and Practice. A quality management system, or QMS, is a collection of business processes focused on achieving quality while meeting customer requirements. It is expressed as the organizational structure, policies, procedures, processes, and resources needed to implement quality management. Why is this important in the fields of transfusion medicine and cellular therapies? The answer to this is simple. The customer served whether they are other healthcare providers or patients, depend on the assurance that the products and services produced and provided are safe and effective for their intended use. A QMS is a framework for continual improvement by enhancing customer satisfaction. In a QMS, customer requirements are defined, processes are designated to meet those requirements, and processes are in place to manage and improve the level of service that is provided. It is also the expectation of regulators that organizations have processes in place to ensure that products and services are safe and successful in producing the desired results. The implementation of effective QMS will help to ensure these outcomes. Finally, with decreases in utilization and increased costs of operations, it is also important that organizations involved in transfusion medicine and cellular therapies operate in the most cost-effective manner possible. A good QMS will reduce rework, waste, and inefficiencies. Thus, an organization will spend fewer resources to achieve the same operational and quality outcomes. An effective QMS provides confidence to the customer, the organization, and other interested parties that the organization will provide products and services that consistently meet or exceed requirements or customer expectations, and it increases efficiencies, thus reducing costs. Background. Quality has been central to the transfusion medicine from its inception. The opening of the first blood bank in the United States at the Cook County Hospital in Chicago in 1937. Continuous scientific progress in many aspects of transfusion medicine have contributed to the quality and safety of blood components and transfusion services, and now cellular therapies. During the 1990s, after the advent of AIDS and the human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, a very sensitized and informed public demanded that the highest level of quality be achieved and maintained in all processes involved in the provision of all blood components and services. The Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, introduced the concept of a zero-risk blood supply as the industry goal, a goal to strive for, but in reality, one that cannot be totally achieved. Regulatory agencies such as the FDA, the Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, state departments of health, and accrediting organizations such as the AABB, the College of American Pathologists, or CAP, the Joint Commission, and the Foundation for the Accreditation of Cellular Therapies, or FACT, require facilities operating in transfusion medicine and cellular therapies to establish and follow a quality control, or QC, and quality assurance program as part of their licensing, certification, and or accreditation programs. 
every laboratory must comply with the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments of 1988, or CLIA, quality requirements implemented by CMS. In 1995, the FDA released its Guideline for Quality Assurance in Blood Establishments. This guideline, along with other FDA-issued guidelines, assists facilities in compliance with the Good Current Manufacturing Practices, or CGMP, requirements found in the Code of Federal Regulations, CFR, Title 21, Parts 200 and 600. Title 21, CFR, Part 820, provides regulations applicable to manufacturers of medical devices, including blood establishment computer systems, or BECS, B-E-C-S. Formerly known as the Good Manufacturing Process Requirements for Medical Devices, the regulations found in Part 820 are known as the Quality System Regulations. The AABB Quality System Essentials, QSEs, Minimum requirements for blood banking and cellular therapy operations are based on all of these specifications and provide additional guidance in implementing practices that ensure quality and compliance with the CGMP and current good tissue practice regulations. AABB and CAP are granted deemed status as accrediting organizations under the CLIA 88 program by CMS as well as a joint commission and some state regulatory bodies. The International Organization for Standardization, or ISO, has established international standards in most fields, which represent minimal requirements. These standards are generic in content and can be applied to any organization, large or small, whatever its product may be. The United States is represented in ISO by the American National Standards Institute, ANSI, the Clinical and Laboratory Standards Institute, CLSI, formerly the National Committee for Clinical Laboratory Standards, or NACLS, a global organization headquarters in the United States, is a member of the ANSI. The FDA and AABB incorporate many ISO principles into the regulations and standards. For example, AABB's QSEs, are rooted in the 20 clauses of the ISO 9000 series and are compatible with ISO standards. Concepts and quality. Quality assurance. The concept of quality assurance is broad and the goals of quality assurance are to significantly decrease errors, ensure the credibility of results, implement safe and effective manufacturing processes and system controls, and ensured continued product safety and quality. A quality assurance program is defined as a system designed and implemented to ensure that manufacturing is consistently performed in such a way as to yield a product of consistent quality. A good quality assurance program includes ways to detect, investigate, assess, prioritize, and correct errors with the ultimate goal of error prevention. Quality assurance activities also include retrospective reviews and analysis of operational performance data to determine whether the overall process is in a state of control and to detect shifts or trends that require attention. Quality assurance provides information to process managers regarding levels of performance that can be used in setting priorities for process improvement. 
quality control. QC is one aspect of a quality assurance program. Its purpose is to determine through testing or observation if a process or particular task within a process is working as expected at a given time. QC involves sampling and testing. Historically, transfusion services and donor centers have used many QC measures as standard practices in their operations. Examples include reagent QC, product QC, clerical checks, visual inspections, and regular measurements such as temperature readings on refrigerators and volume or cell counts on finished blood components. If QC is not within specifications, it may indicate a problem either with the process itself or how the process is being executed. Trends in QC may indicate the potential for a problem in the future. Quality management. Quality management considers interrelated processes in the context of the organization and its relations with customers and suppliers. It addresses the leadership role of executive management in creating a commitment to quality throughout the organization. The understanding of suppliers and customers as partners in quality, the management of human and other resources, and quality planning. An important goal in quality management is to establish a set of controls that ensure process and product quality but are not excessive. Controls that do not add value should be eliminated to conserve limited resources and allow staff to focus attention on those controls that are critical to the operation. Statistical tools such as process capability measurement and control charts allow a facility to evaluate process performance during the planning stage and in operations. These tools help determine if a process is stable, for example, a statistical control, and if it is capable of meeting product and service specifications. A system, quality systems, a system is defined as an organized, purposeful structure that consists of interrelated and interdependent elements, components, processes, entities, factors, members, parts, etc. These elements continually influence one another, directly or indirectly. To maintain their activity and the existence of the system in order to achieve the goal of the system. The quality system is made up of a set of interrelated processes that work together to ensure quality. It is important to understand when a process is. Basically, a process can be defined as a set of activities that uses resources to transform inputs to outputs. The whole blood collection process, for example, has many inputs, such as a trained phlebotomist, an approved collection set, an approved arm scrub solution, and phlebotomy standard operating procedures, or SOPs, all working together to produce the output, a unit of whole blood. The quality of the output is determined by the quality and control that is in place with the inputs and with the process itself. Validation of a process is key in ensuring the process is consistent and produces the desired output. Validation is discussed more fully later in this chapter. Control of the process. Strategies for managing a process should address all of its components, including its interrelated activities, inputs, outputs, and resources. 
supplier qualifications, formal agreements, supplier verification, and inventory control are strategies for ensuring that the inputs to a process meet specifications. Personnel training and competency assessment, equipment, maintenance, and control, management of documents and records, and implementation of appropriate in-process controls provide assurance that the process will operate as intended. End product testing and inspection, customer feedback, and outcome measurement provide data to evaluate product quality and improve the process. These output measurements and quality indicators are used to evaluate the effectiveness of the process and process controls. To manage a system of processes effectively, the facility must understand how it is, its processes interact and what cause and effect relationships exist between them. As an example, the consequences of accepting a donor who is not eligible reach into almost every other process in the facility. For example, if a donor with a history of high-risk behavior is not identified as such during the selection process, the donor unit may return positive test results for one of the viral marker assays, triggering follow-up testing, look-back investigation, and donor deferral and notification procedures. Components must be quarantined and their discard documented. Personnel involved in collecting and processing the units are at risk of exposure to infectious agents. Part of quality planning is to identify these relationships so that quick and appropriate corrective action can be taken when process controls fail. It is important to remember that operational processes include not only product manufacture or service creation, but also the distribution of a product or service. Distribution generally involves interaction with the customer. The quality of that transaction is critical to customer satisfaction and should not be overlooked in the design and ongoing assessment of the QMS. Quality planning. A necessary activity to ensure success of the QMS is quality planning. This is defined as a systematic process that translates quality policy into measurable objectives and requirements and lays down a sequence of steps for realizing them within a specified time frame. <clears throat> a written quality plan provides the framework for implementing and maintaining an effective QMS. This should be a living document that is reviewed and edited as needed. Quality management systems approach. To develop and implement a QMS, it is important for the organizations to follow a planned path. The steps of this plan include step one, determining the needs and expectations of the customer and other interested parties. Step two, establishing a quality policy and quality objectives. Step three, determining the processes needed to obtain those quality objectives and who is responsible for those processes. Step four, ensuring adequate resources are available to execute these processes. Step five, determine and applying methods to evaluate those processes, including making a determination of the effectiveness and efficiency of each process. Step six, designing ways to prevent non-conformances and ways to correct non-conformances that are not prevented. Step seven, establishing a process for continual improvement of the QMS.
Such an approach can be used to develop a QMS or to maintain and improve an existing QMS. The needs and expectations of the customer or interested parties must be defined and documented as fully as possible. The voice of the customer is critical to success. Once an organization understands what customers want, a quality policy and quality objectives should be developed with that information in mind. It is important to consider those who regulate or accredit the organization in the development of the policy and objectives. Although some do not consider these bodies as customers, they certainly have a vested interest in an organization that operates in transfusion medicine or cellular therapies. Resources to achieve the objectives must be determined, and then there must be a way to ensure that they are adequate. As described further in the next section, one of the policy objectives and procedures are in place, methods to evaluate the effectiveness and efficiency of these are necessary. A major goal is to find ways to prevent non-conformances from happening in the first place. But because of the nature of the work, non-compliances or non-conformances will occur. When they do, it is imperative to have a method that not only corrects non-conformances, but prevents them from happening again. Finally, because of a quality system is somewhat dynamic, a philosophy of continual improvement needs to be developed and executed. Evaluation of the quality management system. It is important to evaluate the QMS routinely to determine if it is working as expected. The evaluation should include the following items. Engagement of the stakeholders, purpose of the evaluation, audience for the evaluation, information needed for the evaluation, sources for information related to the evaluation, and tools. Evaluation begins with the engagement of those who have vested interest in the results of the evaluation. In blood establishments and cellular therapy facilities, stakeholders must often include quality operations and management, but might include other areas such as recruitment, and even human resources, depending upon what processes are being evaluated. The purpose of the evaluation should be aligned with issues of greatest concern. For example, one area of concern to blood establishments and to their customers is product availability. An evaluation of product availability would provide information as to whether the right product is available at the right time and opportunities to improve where this falls short. The audience for the evaluation is determined by the stakeholders and usually would include senior management and perhaps regulators or those groups that accredit the organization. Information needed for the evaluation depends on the purpose and the audience. Once these are decided, then information can be gathered to support decision-making or to supply or simply inform. The information may come from a number of sources, production reports, error reports, audits or inspections, and customer feedback, to name a few. A number of tools exist to evaluate the information. A tool is any chart, device, software, strategy, or technique that supports quality management efforts. Many of the tools are easy to use, but it is important that the audience be considered when choosing which tools to use. 
a number of software vendors produce software that is designed specifically to monitor and evaluate the QMS. The quality management system in practice. Several elements comprise a QMS and the application of those elements in transfusion medicine and cellular therapies is described in the text that follows. Basic elements of the QMS include organization and leadership, customer focus, human resources, equipment management, suppliers and materials management, process control and management, documents and records, information management, management of non-conforming events, monitoring and evaluation, process improvement, facilities, work environment, and safety. Organization and leadership. An organization must be structured such that the QMS can be well implemented. The structure should facilitate communication throughout the organization. It is also important that clear descriptions of authority and the responsibilities of each role are defined in writing. The role of senior management is fundamental to the success of any QMS. It is the responsibility of leadership to create an environment where individuals are fully engaged in the QMS and to monitor it to ensure that the system operates effectively. Specific duties assigned to top management include establishing, implementing, and maintaining a quality policy and associated quality goals and quality objectives providing adequate resources to carry out the operations of the facility and the QMS, ensuring appropriate design and effective implementation of new or modified processes and procedures, participating in the review and approval of policies, procedures, and processes, enforcing adherence to operations and quality policies, processes, and procedures, overseeing operations and regulatory and accreditation compliance, periodically reviewing and assessing QMS effectiveness, identifying designees and defining their responsibilities when assisting executive management in carrying out these duties. The individual who is assigned to oversee an organization's quality activities should report to top management. This individual may perform some of the tasks but does not have to personally perform all the quality functions. It is desirable for this individual to operate totally separate, separate from operations, although in smaller organizations, the individual may be involved in operational activities as well. The key here is that the individual should never review his or her own work. Quality functions include the following. Review and approval of SOPs. Review and approval of training plans. Review and approval of validation protocols and results review, validation, and approval of QMS software, audit of operational functions, development of evaluation criteria for systems, review and approval of suppliers and maintenance of an approved supplier list, review of product specifications, review of reports of adverse reactions, error reports, and complaints, determination of the suitability of products, monitoring and trending inspection, oversight, and management, reporting to regulatories, accrediting bodies, customers, or other, others as necessary. 
Although traditionally, the quality department has had responsibility for the majority of these activities, it may be wise to have operations participate in some of these activities. Again, with the caveat that one does not review one's own work. This takes some of the burden from the quality department and reinforces the concept that quality is everyone's responsibility. Customer focus. To obtain true quality, it is imper imperative for an organization to understand the needs and requirements of the customer. Organizations that provide blood components or other cellular products and services have a variety of customers and each should be considered. Processes and services should be designed and developed with the customer requirements in mind. Customer requirements need to be documented. Oftentimes, the documentation is contained in the supplier agreement or contract. Once the requirements are established, there should be a mechanism to receive feedback from the customer at regular intervals to determine if the requirements are being met. Such feedback may be obtained from the analysis of key metrics developed in conjunction with the customer or may be gleaned from customer surveys. Human Resources The Human Resources Department is focused on activities relating to employees. These are activities normally included in recruiting and hiring of new employees, orientation and training of current employees, ongoing staffing needs, employee benefits and retention. Staffing must be adequate to perform the work and to support the QMS. Job descriptions. Organizations should have well-written job descriptions for all personnel. The job description should identify the key role and responsibilities of a particular position, as well as educational and experimental requirements. In some cases, the job description also contains physical requirements such as lifting a certain amount of weight or the ability to stand for long hours. Certain requirements in a job description may be the result of regulatory requirements or industry standards. For example, in some states, individuals may have certain licenses to perform laboratory testing. Such requirements should be well-defined within each job description. Job descriptions should be periodically reviewed to ensure that they are truly reflective of what an individual does in a particular job. Employees should sign their initial job descriptions and any revisions to those job descriptions to indicate they are aware of what their job entails. Often regulators or accrediting agencies request to see current signed job descriptions during their inspections or assessments of an organization. An additional benefit of a well-written job description is that it serves as an aid to the development of a training curriculum. Hiring. Human resources oversees the hiring process, which includes activities such as contacting candidates, setting up interviews, and ensuring new employees are oriented. It may also include pre-employment screening, such as drug testing. During the hiring process, job qualifications are matched against applicant qualifications and individuals are selected for hire based on their ability to meet those job qualifications, including training, education, and experience. Orientation and training. Orientation is critical for a new employee to get the right start. Each employee needs to understand not only is his or her role, but also how that role fits into the organization. 
orientation training generally will include an overview of the organization and its customers, benefits training, an introduction to good manufacturing processes, and or GTP regulations and safety training. Specific training for tasks that are performed as part of an individual's actual job usually occurs in the operational department where the individual is hired. Training on SOPs that the individual will need to perform those tasks is required. Additionally, each employee needs to fully understand the GMP, GTP requirements applicable in the performance of a job. All training must be documented and initial and ongoing assessments of competencies are required. Competency assessments. To ensure that staff maintain the ability to perform their jobs well, routine competency assessments should be conducted to determine their level of competence in performing the work. Organizations need to have a written plan for the conduct of competency assessments, and that plan must include what should be done if an individual does not pass the assessment. CMS has specific requirements for competency assessments of testing personnel. The following six procedures are the minimal regulatory requirements for assessment of competency for each such individuals. Number one, direct observation of routine patient test performance, including patient preparation, if applicable, specimen handling, processing, and testing. Number two, monitoring the recording and reporting of test results. Number three, review of intermediate test results or worksheets, QC records, proficiency testing results, and preventative maintenance records. Number four, direct observations of the performance of instrument maintenance and function checks. Number five, assessment of test performance through testing previously analyzed specimens, internal blind testing samples, or external proficiency testing samples. Number six, Assessment of problem-solving skills. Competency assessments, which includes the six procedures, must be performed for testing personnel for each test the individual is approved to perform by the laboratory director. The competency program should be documented and administered fairly to all staff as required. There should be a defined schedule for the administration of the assessments. Documentation of the results of the competencies assessments should be available for inspection by regulatory and accrediting bodies. Equipment management. Equipment used in processes must be installed as directed by the manufacturer and qualified to ensure that it is working as the manufacturer states it should work. This qualification should be accompanied according to written procedures and should be documented. Qualification is necessary as part of validation activities, including installation qualification. Organizations must ensure that they operate equipment in line with manufacturer's recommendations. Manufacturers may have requirements for temperature, humidity, surrounding space, or other environmental conditions for operation, which must be considered. Equipment must be maintained to ensure proper working conditions. Organizations should have written programs for equipment cleaning and maintenance, again, in line with the manufacturer's recommendations. Preventative maintenance should be established and well-documented. Records of this work must be available 
for inspectors or assessors to view. For equipment used in measurement, routine calibration is required. Calibration involves comparing a measurement device to a known standard and then adjusting it, if necessary, to measure the same as the standard. Routine calibration is a requirement for some equipment. An organization should have a written program for calibration that lists what should be calibrated, the frequency of the calibration, and procedures for performing the calibration. The manufacturer should recommend the frequency of calibration and regulations can be found in the CFR. However, if no guidance is available, the organization should follow standard practice in the industry or, if none exists, should establish a reasonable frequency based on the criticality of the measurement. The actual performance of calibration can be outsourced to an approved outside vendor, but it is the organization's responsibility to maintain calibration records and to ensure that the vendor performs the activities in compliance with applicable reservations, regulations, sorry, and standards. Calibration records and procedures need to be available during inspections and assessments. Equipment QC, performed routinely, is also important in ensuring that equipment is operating as expected. Documentation of any QC that is performed should be evaluated in a timely manner, and the results should be evaluated to determine if there are trends over time that may indicate the equipment is beginning to fail. The frequency of QC, again, is dependent on the criticality of the functioning of the equipment. Equipment used in determining donor eligibility, for example, may require daily QC because of the criticality of its use. Review of QC records needs to be timely to limit the scope of investigation should the review reveal a problem. Selection of equipment. Organizations should select equipment based on its ability to meet pre-established and documented specifications. Other factors that should be considered are cost, service, history with others in the industry, and support. Usually, organizations have several vendors from which to choose, and thus the additional factors become even more important. It is key that organizations establish criteria on the front end of the selection process the equipment should fit the organization's needs. Workflow should be defined before selection of equipment. The organization should not have to alter its process to fit the equipment unless there's only one supplier and no other choice. The manufacturer of equipment should be qualified according to an organization's supplier qualification process. Equipment identification. Equipment should be identified and a list of equipment should be maintained. This list should be kept up to date and when equipment is moved from one location to another or removed from service, the action taken should be recorded. Because of the amount of equipment in an organization that performs blood banking, transfusion medicine, or cellular therapy activities, tracking equipment can be a daunting task. Software vendors have developed automated solutions to assist organizations with this, but even if it must be done manually, the tracking of equipment is necessary. Equipment that is out of service should be removed from operational areas, if at all possible, and clearly labeled as out of service so it will not be used in the manufacturing process. Suppliers and Materials Management 
ensuring that a supplier can provide what is needed to perform the work and that the supplies meet pre-established specifications is a critical aspect of the QMS. Organizations must determine and document requirements and seek suppliers through the process of supplier qualification that meet those requirements. Supplier qualifications. Supplier qualifications is a process whereby an organization determines whether or not supplier can meet its requirements. Such requirements usually include the ability to meet regulations, the availability of supply, the timeliness of delivery, responsiveness to issues and problems, cost and support. Other requirements may be specific to the organization. It is a common practice for organizations to participate in buying groups that perform qualification of suppliers for those participating in the group. Supplier qualifications may include surveys to the supplier, surveys to customers that the supplier currently serves, and on-site audits of the supplier. Surveys may be more cost-effective, but on-site audits are generally considered best if the supplier is providing materials or services that are critical to operations. In fact, the more critical the material supplied, the more stringent the qualification should be. An organization should maintain a list of approved suppliers. Best lists should be reviewed routinely for each supplier's ability to consistently meet the needs of the organization. Suppliers can be added or removed from the list as necessary. Management of the list usually falls to the quality department, although it could be placed in the area such as purchasing with quality oversight. Contracts and agreement. It is common practice to develop a written contract or agreement with a supplier that stipulates the organization's requirements and expectations. This document should define the role of both the organization and the supplier in the relationship and should also stipulate the manner in which the supplier will operate to meet the organization's needs. It is, good, it is a good idea to establish and document metrics that can be monitored on a regular basis. If metrics indicate that there is a problem, corrective action should be taken. If the problem cannot be corrected, it may mean that the supplier should be removed from the approval list. AABB standards stipulate that organizations should monitor their agreements. For example, the Joint Commission requires that hospital blood banks establish metrics with their blood suppliers that are evaluated routinely with documentation of the results of that evaluation as well as any corrective actions required by the supplier as a result of failure to meet those metrics. Receipts and inspection of incoming supplies. When supplies are initially received, it is important that they are physically separated from supplies that are in use until they can be expected for suitability of use. Some organizations have caged areas where incoming supplies are quarantined until inspected. Others use shelving and labeling, often with color coding, to quarantine incoming supplies. The incoming inspection and release is most commonly performed by the quality department, but in some instances, operations may conduct the inspection for quality. Organizations should develop criteria for acceptance, and incoming supplies should be inspected against such criteria. 
Supplies not meeting the pre-established criteria should remain in quarantine, and the supplier should be notified of the issue. The inspection should be conducted according to a written procedure, and there should be documentation of the suitability of the supplies or their disposition if found unsuitable. Most often these supplies are returned to the supplier, but they may be discarded if the supplier does not need them for further investigation. Both external packaging and the contents of that packaging should be expected for acceptance. If there is something wrong in the product or packaging, the product must be quarantined, either physically or with clear labeling, until disposition is determined by the quality department. Process control and management. Process control is the sum of activities involved in ensuring a process is predictable, stable, and constantly operating at the target level of performance with only normal variation. Important aspects of process control include SOPs, process validation, computer system validation, test method validation, QC, training, tracking, and trending. Standard operating procedures. SOPs provide instruction on how to perform a task and are key to achieving consistency and control in operations. A full discussion of SOPs is found in the Documents and Records section. Process validation. One of the most important aspects of process control is the initial establishment that a process consistently works to produce a desired result. The validation of the process. Process validation is defined as the collection and evaluation of data from the process design stage through commercial production, which establishes scientific evidence that a process is capable of consistently delivering quality product. Validation establishes that a process has consistent results that meet predetermined requirements. Validation should be performed for all critical processes according to a written validation protocol. The protocol should contain the following, system description, purpose of the validation, risk assessment, responsibilities, test cases, acceptance criteria, problem reporting mechanism, approval signature, supporting documentation. The system description identifies the components of the system used for the process and includes a description of how those components work together during the process. It should also include environmental conditions under which the system operates as applicable and any utility specifications. The purpose of the validation is usually straightforward. Validations may be conducted because a process is new or something is significant has changed within the process and assurance is needed that the process still maintains in a validated state. A process validation has three phases. Installation qualification, operational qualification, and performance qualification. Installation qualification ensures that any equipment used within the process is instilled appropriately and qualified to perform as the manufacturer states, and that the environment, including utilities, is appropriate for its operation as defined by the manufacturer. It also ensures that necessary SOPs are written, training is developed, and staff are trained in the execution of related SOPs. Operational qualifications demonstrates that the process operates as intended, and it focuses on the process capability, worst case challenges.
The final phase, performance qualification, demonstrates that the process works as expected in a normal working environment. Although a manufacturer usually does a significant amount of validation work before bringing equipment or software to market, the end user still has to perform the user's own validation. For example, computer software vendors do a tremendous amount of testing of software to determine limitations, etc. Yet, the user of the software must validate the software in the user's environment with the user staff and SOPs. Consultants may be used to assist with validation, but final validation and results of the validation are the responsibility of the end user. The amount of validation work needed is dependent on the process, its criticality, and the ability to test the end result 100% of the time or not. A risk assessment aids in the determination of how much testing must be done. The more risk a process introduces, the more testing an organization normally does. This is especially important when there is no way to test the end result of a process other than to destroy good product. If the process is not a high risk or critical process, then less testing may be done as the organization is willing to take the risk should the process not work as expected. Within a validation, there are multiple roles. The individual who writes the validation protocol is responsible for ensuring it is complete and contains all the necessary information and sufficient testing cases to obtain the degree of assurance desired. Those who ex execute the validation protocol must have training in the process and may often be individuals who will perform the process routinely, although this is not always the case. The quality department and others, as appropriate, approve the validation protocol and the final results of the validation before a process is implemented. Test cases should be developed to test the various parameters of the process and to challenge the process as much as reasonable. The more testing that is performed, the more assurance that the process works consistently, but it is not always possible to perform enough tests to get 100% assurance. Usually an organization seeks a comfort level of testing that is reasonable and in line with industry standards. Each test case should be expected results. If those results are not obtained, a problem report must be executed and there should be a resolution before proceeding. Failure of a test case could be the result of improper installation qualification, a poorly written test case, an unrealistic expected result, or poor execution of a test case itself. If investigation does not produce a cause and a resolution for the issue, then the process itself may have to be changed or the process may be implemented with limitations that are documented within the validation summary. The acceptance criteria for a validation must be documented before the validation work begins. This criteria should be changed in the middle of the validation unless there is good reason to change it. And if change does occur, the validation protocol must be amended and the amended protocol must be approved again. Once the validation protocol is completed, it needs approval from operations and quality at a minimum. 
In a CLIA laboratory setting, the medical director must also serve as an approver of validation work. Approval must occur before any execution of test cases. As stated above, if there is good reason to modify the protocol, it is necessary to amend it and have it approved again. The protocol may include supporting documentation such as user manuals or pertinent technical articles. The validation proves the process is consistent and produces an end result that meets specifications. During the validation of an organization may uncover the following. Design flaws, inadequate requirements, errors in SOPs, errors in user manuals, training deficiencies, incompatibilities with interfaces, incompatibilities with the physical environment, misconceptions about process capabilities. Following completion of the test cases, a validation summary is normally written. This summary describes the expected and observed results and whether or not those results are acceptable. It also delineates any problems encountered during the validation and what was done to resolve those problems. It defines any process limitations, either known before beginning the validation or discovered during the validation. Finally, it contains a conclusion based on the results. Before implementing the process, the validation summary should be reviewed and approved again by operations, quality, and the medical director as appropriate. Supporting documentation may accompany the summary as well as a timeline for implementation of the process, although this is often a separate document. It is important to remember that while a validation gives an organization confidence in its processes and significantly reduces the need for end product testing, no validation, no matter how extensive, can test every possibility or control the human element. Continual process monitor is needed to ensure the process remains in a validated state. End of part one, chapter one, AABB technical manual.